We're looking at Acts chapter 2 again today. Um, If you were in Bible class, you studied a portion of Acts, and that's what we're doing is looking at Acts both in Bible class and in sermon time. Acts chapter 2, as we mentioned last week, is so formational and foundational for the church that I wanted to look at the, toward the end of the chapter and uh, not leave it until we've learned just a bit, or at least let it uh, work in our lives a little bit more. Let's be standing, please, as we hear this portion of God's Word, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37, where Peter has finished his sermon, and the people that were listening to the sermon now are responding. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are very far, uh, who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together. And had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. May God bless the reading of his word. So, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's a question we usually ask kids, don't we? I mean, they come up with some interesting answers. Uh, I got to share one grandparent story. I uh, hope you'll be patient with me. But when our six-year-old was four and was graduating from Sunshine School, stood up here on this stage with his little cap and gown on, and uh, there was a presentation about him and all his interests and everything. And Judy Clemmer, the director of the school, had asked them several questions. And one question she had asked them is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, a couple of little boys before Jaron, our grandson, one had said he wanted to be an astronaut. Another one said that he wanted to be a doctor, and it was Jaron's turn, and Jaron revealed that he wanted to be the manager at a Best Western motel. <laughs> now, you may think he's not really setting his you know, sights real high, but he's thinking, and maybe he's the realist of the family. I don't know. Pat was teaching the first grade this summer, and she asked a similar question to her class about growing up and what they wanted to be, and one of the kids chimed in that that he wanted to be an American picker. Now, you have to be a History Channel buff to know what an American picker is, so all you cultured folks, explain to the rest what an American picker might be. But it's a good question, and it always gets some kind of response from the kids. What do you want to be when you grow up? 
But you know, we adults and those of us with a few years on us can tell you that it's really still a good question for all of us because in some way we're all still growing up and we all still have goals and dreams of who and what we want to be. It's especially a good question to ask a Christian because when we become a Christian, we set a goal. And there's something that we want to be, and we want to be growing into that person. The Apostle Paul didn't have my little thing up there. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, these words. There we go. We must no longer be children, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head And if we haven't gotten it yet, he just goes and tells us, isn't it? It's Christ, into Christ. And every one of us who have become a Christian, every one of us who have become a disciple, have this goal in our mind. What do we want to be when we grow up? We want to be more like Christ. We can't just stay children. We can't just stay where we were when we first came to him. For it is a part of the commitment of coming to Christ to grow in Christ. When we come to him and we say we want to walk with you, we are saying to him we want to grow up. We want to become more mature. We don't want to be children any longer. So we've set that as our goal. All of us have that dream in our heart of of becoming a more mature disciple. The question is, how do we do it? Well, that's why we've gone back to Acts chapter 2. As I said as we were introducing the reading... Acts chapter 2 is very formational. There's a lot of information in there about the beginning walk of at least 3,000 people with Christ. And we know that from there in the beginning, as they heard the Word of God, and for the first time they were convicted that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus had died and now he had been resurrected and he had ascended to sit at the right hand of God himself. They had heard that message, and they realized that they needed to do something about that. So they asked the question, what do we do now? And Peter's answer was, repent. Change your life. Set a new direction in your life. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive then the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the beginning of our walk. It was the beginning for those 3,000 people then. It remains the beginning for us today. But it's just that, the beginning. One thing that I run into occasionally when I'm talking to people about their life with Christ and their faith is sometimes people will delay baptism. They'll say, well, you know, I do believe that Jesus is the Christ. I do believe that I need to be his uh, disciple, but I'm going to wait until I know more before I'm baptized. Or sometimes people say, I'm going to wait until I get my life together better before I'm baptized. No, You respond to him at the beginning. Whenever you come to faith, it is the first step that you take so that he can help you get your life together. He can help you uh, learn more about who he is and about who God is. It's, It's that first step you take. And so if you are a person who believes in Jesus Christ, if you are a person 
who wants to be a child of God, that very desire then qualifies you to step out and to make that first step to be baptized. Well, the vast majority of us here today have done that. So again, we come back to the question, what then? What comes next? If we've made that first step and we are a child of God, how do we move toward maturity? How do we grow up in Christ? Well, throughout the Bible, we could go to several places to give answers to that, but we've chosen, like I say, to look at Acts chapter 2. We want to look at these 3,000 people that were baptized that first day and kind of follow them in their first days of being a disciple and see what process that God, through his apostles, set into place so that they could grow. Now, I want to give you a warning. Those of you who have been around church for a long time and have been studying the Bible a long time, we're not going to tell you anything new. You know, it's always fun if we can come up with some kind of novel uh, plan for discipleship and put different names to it and write a book about it and all of that. Well, we're just going to go back to the basics today because these are the things that were set in place in that first church, and they're still effective today. It's much like taking care of our bodies. We all know what we need to be doing. Uh, we all know that if you want to have a healthy body, you need to eat healthy food and exercise. I mean, we can come up with all kinds of videos and all kinds of plans to make you a healthy person, but when it comes down to it, we really know what we're supposed to be doing. Eat good food and exercise, take care of our bodies. So that's the basics that we're going to look at today. And as we look at these things, I want to challenge you to think, am I really utilizing that? Am I doing to the fullest the very things that those first Christians did so that they progressed in their discipleship, that they grew closer to and more like Christ? Number one, you notice in the passage it says there that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They realized that they didn't know everything they didn't know all the things that God had revealed to uh, them and to us about himself. So they were very attentive to what the apostles were teaching. And what were they teaching? Well, they were teaching what the scriptures had said about Jesus. Therefore, we too today can sit at the feet of the apostles, just like those early Christians did. For this book in the New Testament is filled with the words of the apostles and the teachings of the apostles as God inspired them to tell those people and therefore now to tell us what it is that we need to know. And as they taught there in the New Testament, they oftentimes were taking the Old Testament and they were expounding on it and showing how God through the hundreds of centuries had, had, had said that Jesus was coming and told us about him and told us about who he is. And so therefore, it's really all of Scripture that becomes our teacher. If we are to grow in Christ, we cannot just give lip service to the idea of studying the Word of God. We can't just agree that that's a good thing. we got to do it. The Word of God is living and active. Remember that passage in Hebrews? I am a firm believer that if we will just make ourselves available to it, that there is power in that Word. That we may not be the greatest scholars in the world to understand every little jot and tittle that's there. You may not be able to read it in Hebrew. You may not be able to read it in Greek. 
But if you will just take it and read it, that it will be effective at some level on your life. It will continue to pull you. It will continue to push you. It will continue to expand you. It will continue to help you mature. Paul later on was talking to Timothy and he said, the word of God is inspired and it works on you. It teaches you. It reproves you. You know, sometimes people avoid reading it because it tells them they're wrong, you know, and, and it'll tell all of it. If we read much of it, you're going to find something in there that says you're not doing that right. It teaches you, it reproves you, but it gives you the correction too. It sets you in the right direction and it trains you. So therefore, if we are to grow in Christ, we have got to have this as a part of our daily, our daily activities. You know, I love to eat, and there's very few times that I get so busy I forget that it's time to eat. And yet sometimes with Scripture reading, it's like, oh yeah, I know I need to be doing that. I know I need to be exposed to the Word of God, but I just got busy today. I didn't really get around to it. And it's, if we are serious about becoming more Christ-like, it will be as much a part of our daily routine as stopping and grabbing a bite to eat, just having at least a small portion of our day given to meditation and thinking and allowing of the Word of God to come in. Well, got to move on. Another thing that's listed there is the breaking of bread. Now, when Luke talks about breaking of bread, he's using code language, okay? But we're going to break the code. Anytime Luke in the book of Acts says breaking of bread, what's he talking about? The Lord's Supper. We call it the Lord's Supper. We call it communion. Luke called it breaking bread. Therefore, part of spiritual growth is having the Lord's Supper. Now, that may be somewhat of a new thought to you. You know, we, we're thinking, well, it's a command that we do, and, and it's something we're supposed to come together and do on Sunday mornings. And there's biblical precedent for that. In Acts chapter 20, Paul stayed in the city of Troas for a few extra days because he wanted to wait till the church came together on Sunday, on the first day of the week, so he could have the Lord's Supper with them. And so we know we're commanded to do that, but it's not just the fulfillment of a command. It is a means of spiritual growth. In fact, the early Christians, these first few, recognized that so much that if you read that passage, it's mentioned twice and it also says that not only would they do it on the first day of the week, that's not really said there, we assume that they did, but they would do it day by day. And not only did they do it when they got together as a whole church, but they did it even at home with each other. When they would get together, they recognized the value of stopping their busy lives and sitting around the table and taking bread and saying, do you remember that the body of Christ was given for us? Do you remember that the blood of Jesus was poured out for us? It is a means to grow in Christ. Jesus is nearer to us at the table than he is in any other place. He, he longed to eat and drink with us. That's what he told his disciples, that in the kingdom he would come and he would eat and drink with us. Therefore, if you want to grow in him, if you want to get to know him better... Every time bread is broken and a cup of wine is poured, then open your hearts to him. Don't let it just go by. I have a confession to make. This is one area of discipline I have to work on too. Because in our order of things, we usually have the Lord's Supper right before the sermon. 
Guess what it's so easy for me to be doing while we're having the Lord's Supper? I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to say that, and then I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this. And I miss that opportunity. But it's such a temptation for all of us, isn't it? Not to stop and realize that Jesus is eating and drinking with us. Paul talked about how take the advantage of examining your life while you eat of the Lord's Supper. Look inside yourself. Think back over your past week. Think about any mistakes you might have made. Think about any relationships that you might have with others that are strained. And hold those before the Lord. And let the body of Christ and the blood of Christ feed and nurture your soul. Let the body of Christ and the blood of Christ wash you and make you clean again. So that as you leave this place having having eaten of that food and drunk of that drink, that you are once again close to Him, together with Him. You can walk into this building without Jesus. But I pray that after sitting at His table, you walk out with Him. So, the Lord's Supper itself is a discipline. The Lord's Supper itself is discipleship. It helps us to grow. We talked about day by day. Prayer. They devoted themselves to the prayers, it says. Again, this is something that we as Christians often give lip service to, that yes, we know that if we are going to grow spiritually, we've got to be people of prayer. That's right. You are not going to grow as a Christian if you are not a person that prayer is a regular part of your daily routine. Just mark it down. It's not going to happen. Look at Jesus himself. What did he spend so much of his time doing? Praying. So much so that his disciples came to him one day and said, Lord, teach us how to pray like you do. Now, these guys, it doesn't like they never had prayed before. They grew up going to synagogue. They grew up religious folks. They had been to prayers before. They had participated in prayer. But they wanted to pray like Jesus. And they came and said, teach us how to pray. Because in prayer, you open yourself up and make yourself available to God. I know I say this so often, but it's so meaningful to me that, that in our lives, we, we think about lots of things. We get our minds on a lot of things. We're not always thinking about God. But whenever we pray, we open ourselves to Him, and He has an opportunity to work on us. If you want the peace of God, Pray for the peace of God and sit there in silence and give God the opportunity with your heart open wide for him to place his spirit of peace there. If you need more strength, if you need more commitment, if you need, well, ask and then sit and let him work on you while you are giving him your attention and your heart and your soul is open to him. A couple of other little things on this. So I didn't get my prayer guy in there. Sorry about that. All right, a couple of more things on this. Notice that it says they devoted themselves to the prayers. If you're reading the correct version, at least it will. That's what it says in Greek. The prayer, not, not just prayer. Uh, you know, Jesus talked about when you pray, don't draw attention to yourself. Don't go stand out on a street corner in the middle of the mall saying, I'm praying, I'm praying. You know, go home, get in your closet. It's just between you and God. Well, that's true. You're not supposed to draw attention to yourself. But all through Scripture, we are called to come and pray with the people of God. And so here what's going on, they also gathered together and they all prayed together because our prayers are, 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 are effective alone. But when we come together... Jesus said, when two or three of you guys get together, 
I'm there. And so we pray together. Let's not neglect to make sure that if we want to grow as disciples, we're together in our prayers and we're praying with one another. The other thing is I want to point out is that prayer is something you will never outgrow. You will never explore the furthest reaches of prayer. If you think you know how to pray, you don't. (laughs) There are so many ways to pray. There's so much depth to prayer. This morning, our first service, we sang happy birthday to Ruth Gaines, who just turned 95 today. And you go ask Ruth Gaines if she's learned everything about prayer, if she has explored the depths of prayer, and she would tell you not yet. She's still working on it. There's that much about prayer. If you don't know what, how to pray, you just there is a simple prayer, the prayer just of the heart. But look at all these. Here's some other ones that, that you can find. You can find information about these both in the Scripture and go read Richard Foster's book on prayer. Uh, push yourself. Be an aerobic prayer. Uh, don't be satisfied just to say your prayers in the same way all the time. There is so much about prayer that will bless your life, that will grab hold of you and pull you and push you until you are actually growing deeper in Christ and growing to be more like Christ. Giving. This text tells us that these people were so committed to one another that there were poor people among them so that they brought their goods. They, they even sold things. They had garage sales. Uh, They sold pieces of property so that they could make sure that they could give to those who were in need. That's true. If you've tuned out, please tune back in for this next uh, sentence, and then you can go back away again, okay? Let me tell you something. One of the most crucial moments in your life as a disciple is when you turn from being a disciple, being about me, to it being about you. You know, when you come to Christ, it really is about me. I come to Christ because I'm lost. I come to Christ because I'm scared. I come to Christ because things have fallen apart. I come to Christ because I want to go to heaven. I come to Christ because me, me, I, I. Well, that's okay. That's all right. You know, you come to Christ, you're a child. Uh, Little children are all about themselves, aren't they? It's all about me and I and mine. But we can't stay there. At some point, it has to change from being about me to being about you. Now, giving is, a, is that's what that's all about. That's not a very good graphic because that has to do with money. And money's involved in giving. But giving is much more than just what we do with our money. It's what we do with ourselves and what we do with our time, what our concern really is. Jesus was all about giving. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. He did not consider existing on equality with God a thing to be held on to. It wasn't about him, but rather he turned to us and he emptied himself and poured himself out. The only reason he came to this earth to die was because of you, for you. And to grow in Christ means that to become more like him is that we turn around and it's more about you than it is about me. Yeah, you need to give your money. I'm a firm believer that you set aside 10% of everything you have and you give it away. You give it to the church. You give it to people who need help. You give it to other ministries. You give it to someone where it'll help. At least in the biblical standard, 10% is kind of the minimal. That's the amount of money, and you set it aside at the first of the month, and then it's gone. You give it away. That's the godly thing to do. It helps turn you from yourself to 
others. One of the key texts of giving, if you want to explore it more, is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I didn't write that down on the thing, but uh, read 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and it talks about how God loves people who have found the joy in giving, and how God is just looking for people who are givers in order that he can siphon more of his stuff through them, you know, because he wants it to get over here to the people that really need it, and he'll give it to the people that'll give it to them. Second uh, Corinthians 9, great text. Praising God, you know, that's listed here. When we think of praising God, we typically think of singing. Singing is uh, listed specifically in other portions of the Scripture. Disciples have always been singers. What is the last thing Jesus did with his disciples before he went to the garden to pray and was arrested? They sang a hymn. That's right. Singing has always been a part of the life of uh, of God's uh, children. Now, it doesn't have to be that you're singing on key. I, I like this little one because this is me over here, right here with the, the crooked note there. But we're singing out and praising God. Songs are portable spiritual growth tools. Songs have a handle on them. You can take them anywhere because in your heart they're always there. You may not be able to quote a scripture, but you can sing that scripture, can't you? One of my favorite newer songs that we've started singing is, You, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory. You're the lifter of my soul. A head. Lifter of my head. Isn't that marvelous? That's Psalm 3. I've read Psalm 3 a lot of times. And yet it never really ministered to me until we started singing Psalm 3. And that psalm goes with me everywhere now. And there are times when I'm down, and if I think of that, I can feel the fingers of God picking up my chin. You're the lifter of my head. Some of the great old psalms that are so deep and dense sometimes that we try not to, we don't sing them all the time because it takes a lot of work to get into them. We sang one last week, love divine, all love excelling. I challenge you to have those words in your heart and to let those words minister to you. And just beautiful words of Charles Wesley. We can, we can let Bernard of Clairvaux, who lived 1,600 years ago, but was one of the most mature, deepest Christians to ever live, he can minister to you whenever you sing, O sacred head now wounded. I love the last line, O never, never God, let me outlive my love for you. Wow. You know, songs are tools of spiritual growth. That's why we sing them. We don't just sing them so we can have a good experience, so that they sound pretty, but they go deep inside our heart and they push us and expand us and help us to grow. One more thing, fellowship. They were together in fellowship. This is said in several ways in this particular passage in Acts chapter 2. It talks about how they were together, and in fact it says that they spent much time together. I don't want to get off too much on what I'm trying to say, but one thing about being a part of the family of God is you spend time with the family. It can't be something that you give an hour, two or three times a month. You've got to spend time with the family of God in order for us to be able to have fellowship with one another. But what does fellowship mean? What is the meaning of it? Well, there's several definitions. It's a sharing. In fact, fellowship includes giving to one another and sharing our worldly goods with one another. It also means communion or partnership, friendship with one another. But it's the third definition that really I like the best and I think is the key to fellowship really working in. It's taking part or participating. 
Fellowship is all about participation. And I put a little graphic up here to remind me of a story I wanted to tell you. You may wonder what soccer's got to do with spiritual growth. It helped me to grow spiritually, and I hope if I can tell you this short story, it'll help you too. Uh, I knew nothing about soccer until my kids started playing soccer. I grew up with basketball, football, baseball, real American sports, okay? And then all of a sudden this foreign sport comes in here, soccer, and the kids want to play soccer. It's okay. Well, I learned the rules, and I went to the games, and I sat there on the sideline, and I cheered for my kid, and I criticized the coach. You know, the coach wasn't doing this. The coach wasn't doing that. And, and you know, we, well, all of that was fine and good until they asked me to coach. So I had to go to a coaching clinic. And guess what? A lot of my criticism was right on. I did know what you were supposed to do. I did know how to play the game. And all the things I'd been pointing out that they were doing wrong, they were doing wrong. But the problem was, at the end of the coaching clinic, we had to play a game of soccer. I had never played a game of soccer. And I found out it's a lot different when you're playing it. I remember that I was playing forward and I was running down the field and this guy kicked this ball, a perfect pass to me, just me and the goalie, you know, and all I had to do is get to the ball and just, you know, dink it into the net and I ran and I ran and and I just couldn't get there. And all of a sudden everybody's on me, well, why didn't you kick the ball? Well, I tried to kick the ball. Participation changes everything. If we fellowship in the body, We're going to learn a lot of things. Let me give you three of them real fast. One thing we're going to learn is that mistakes are going to be made. And you're making a lot of them. (laughs) Not only are other people making mistakes, but you're making mistakes too. And it teaches us patience and grace because we know how hard it is. And we don't expect everything to be perfect all the time. And we don't just sit back and criticize because we're in the game too. And we know how hard it is. But on the other side, if you play the game... If you participate, you can recognize the good stuff. You see when somebody really does something well, you say, I know how difficult that is. I know how much sacrifice it takes to do that. Therefore, that's good. And you won't know that unless you're in the midst of it. You're not going to learn that by just coming and sitting and watching. You're only going to learn that whenever you're really a part of things. And the last thing, too, is this is where you will find your friends is in participation. You know, it's hard to make friends. Some of you that are sitting out there, you may have been coming to this church three, four, five years, and you may think, you know, I really don't know any of these people. I don't really have any friendships here. Well, the way to do that is come and participate. Come and work with us. Come and teach a Bible class with another teacher. Stand at the door and greet people as they come in. Go work at Rust Street. Sing on the praise team. There's so many things going on. Come work in the garden with us for a while. Because you will find that suddenly there's your friends. And and, and your conversation, yeah, will be about this and that and everything. But it will also be about what it means to be a child of God and to love and to grow. And when you find yourself stumbling and falling, there will be someone there to pick you up. And you'll turn around and you'll see one of your friends in need. All because you participated 
and you got involved. That's fellowship. Fellowship isn't just sitting around a table having a meal and laughing and talking. That's sort of the fruit of fellowship. It's sitting around that table with people you know well and love because you've been up working with them and involved with them in the kingdom of God. So much more we could say about growing up as a disciple, but these are the things we find here toward the end of Acts chapter 2. And I hope and pray that if you see any of those areas in which you can, can become more a part of and grow in, then commit yourself to that. Do not be satisfied with being a child of God. Aim toward being mature in Christ. It all begins with the first step of coming and accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, putting Him on in baptism. And that may be the commitment you need to make today. Make that commitment today. We're going to stand, we're going to sing a song of invitation, but while we're singing this song, maybe you need to commit to one of these other things. Maybe you need to commit to growing in Christ in some way in your life. Let's stand and sing.